Chapter 12 of Mr. Incool's Misadventure. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Matt Butcher, Peoria, Illinois. You can visit my blog at mattbuttershop.blogspot.com. Mr. Incool's Misadventure by Edgar Saltis. Chapter 12. Mr. Incool is preoccupied. Mr. Incool's attitude to his wife had, meanwhile, in no wise altered. To an observer, nay, to Maida herself, he was as silent, methodical, and self-abnegatory as he had been from the first. He had indeed caused her to send a regret to Ballister without giving any reason why the regret should be sent, but otherwise he showed himself very indulgent. He cared little for the stage, yet to gratify Maida he engaged boxes for the season at the Francais and at the Opera. Now and then in the early autumn, when summer was still in the air, he took her to dine in the Bois, at Madrid or Armininville, and drove home with her in the cool of the evening, stopping perhaps for a moment at some one of the different concerts that lined the Champs-Élysées, and sometimes he went with her to Versailles, and at others to Vincennes, and one Sunday to Bougival. But there Maida would never return. It was crowded with a set of people, the like of which she had never seen before, with women whose voices were high-pitched and unmodulated, and men in queer coats who stared at her and smiled if they caught her eye. But with the first tingle that accompanies the falling leaves, the open-air restaurants and concerts closed their doors. There was a succession of new plays which Vitu always praised and Sarcy always damned. The verdict of the latter gentleman, however, did not affect Maida in the least. She went bravely to the Odeon and liked it, to the Cluny where she saw a shocking play that made her laugh till she cried. She went to the Nations and saw La Cressionnaire and shuddered before the art of that wonderful actor. At the Gymnase she saw the Matre de Forche, and when she went home her eyes were wet. She saw Nitouche and would have willingly gone back the next night to see it again. Even Mr. Incoul smiled nothing more irresistibly amusing than Baron could be imagined. She saw, too, Bartet and Delaunay, and for the first time heard French well-spoken. But of all entertainments, the opera pleased her most. Already under Mapleson's reign, she had wearied of mere sweetness in music. She felt that she would enjoy Wagner, and even planned a pilgrimage to Bayreuth. But meanwhile, Meyerbeer had the power to intoxicate her very soul. The septet in the second act of La Africaine affected her as had never anything before. It vibrated from her fingertips to the back of her neck. The entire score, from the opening notes of the overture to the farewell of Zuleika's that fuses with the murmur of the sea, thrilled her with abrupt surprises, with series and excesses of delight. There were, of course, many evenings when neither opera nor theater was attractive and on such evenings invitations from resident friends and acquaintances were sometimes accepted and sometimes open house was held. On these occasions, Maida found herself an envied bride. It was not merely that her husband was rich enough to buy a principality and hand it over for charitable purposes. It was not merely that he was willing to give her everything that feminine heart could desire. It was that, however crowded the halls might be, he seemed conscious of the existence of but one woman, and that woman, was his wife. There were triflers who said that this attitude was bourgeois. There were others, more witty, who said that it was immoral. But, be this as it may, the South American highwaymen, who called themselves generals, 
the Russian princesses, the Romanian boyards, the attaches, ambassadors, and other accredited boors, the contingent from the Faubourg, the American residents, who, were they sent in a body to the rack, could not have confessed to an original thought among them, all these, together with a sprinkling of Spaniards and English, that to Paris, in fact, agreed, as it was intended they should, on this one point, to wit, that Mr. Incoul was the most devoted of husbands. And such apparently he was. If Maida had any lingering doubts as to the real reason of their return to Paris, little by little they faded. After her fright she made with herself several little compacts, and that she might carry them out the better she wrote to Lennox, a short, decisive note. She determined that he should never enter her life again. It was no longer his. He had let it go without an effort to detain it, and in Bayeritz, if it had seemed that he still held the key of her heart, it was owing as much to the unexpectedness of his presence as to the languors of the afternoons. In marrying, she had meant to be brave, indeed she had been so, when there was no danger, and if in spite of her intentions she had faltered, the faltering had at least served as a lesson which she would never need to learn again. Over the cinders of her youth she would write a requiescat. Her girlhood had been her own to give, but her womanhood she had pledged to another. As she thought of these things, she wondered at her husband. He had done what she had hardly dared to expect. He had observed her antinuptial agreement to the letter. A brother could not have treated her with greater respect. Surely if ever a man set out to win his wife's affection, he had chosen the surest way. And why had he so acted, if it were not as he had said, that given time and opportunity, he would win her affection? He was doing so, Maida felt, and with infinitely greater speed than she had ever deemed possible. Beside, if the mangled remnants of her heart seemed attractive, why should he be debarred from their possession? Yet that was precisely the point. He did not know of the mangled remnants. He thought her heart whole and virginal. But what would he do if he learned the truth? And as she wondered, suddenly the consciousness came to her that she was living with a stranger. Heretofore, she had not puzzled over the possible intricacies of her husband's inner nature. She had known that he was of a grave and silent disposition, and as such she had been content to accept him, without question or query. But as she collected some of the scattered threads and memories of their life in common, it seemed to her that latterly he had become even graver and more silent than before, and this merely when they were alone. In the presence of a third person, when they went abroad as guests, or when they remained at home as hosts, he put his gravity aside like a garment. He encouraged her in whatever conversation she might have engaged in. He aided her with a word or a suggestion. He made a point of consulting her openly, and smiled approvingly at any bright remark she chanced to make. But when they were alone, unless she personally addressed him, he seldom spoke, and the answers that he gave her, while perfectly courteous in tone and couching, struck her, now that she reflected, as automatic, like phrases learned by rote. It is true they were rarely alone. In the mornings he busied himself with his correspondence, and in the afternoons she found herself fully occupied with shops and visits, while in the evenings there was usually a dinner, a play, or a reception, sometimes all three. Since the season had begun, it was only now and then, once in ten days perhaps, that an evening was passed on tete On such occasions he would take up a book and read persistently, or he would smoke, flicking the ashes from the cigar abstractedly with his little finger, and so sit motionless for hours, his eyes fixed on the cornice. It was this silence that puzzled her. It was evident that he was thinking of something, but of what? 
It could not be archaeology. He seemed to have given it up, and he was not a metaphysician, the only thinker, be it said, to whom silence is at all times permissible. At first she feared that his preoccupation might in some way be connected with the episodes at Beiritz, but this fear faded. Mr. Incoul had been made a member of the Circle des Capuchins, and now and then looked in there ostensibly to glance at the papers or to take a hand at whist. One day he said casually, I saw your friend Lee at the club. You might ask him to dinner. The invitation was sent, but Lennox had regretted. After that incident, it was impossible for her to suppose that her husband's preoccupation was in any wise connected with the intimacy which had subsisted between the young man and herself. There seemed left to her then but one tenable supposition. Her husband had been indulgence personified. He had been courteous, refined and foreseeing, in fact a gentleman, and, if silent, was it not possible that the silence was due to a self-restraining delicacy, to a feeling that did he speak he would plead, and that, perhaps, when pleading, would be distasteful to her? To this solution Maida inclined. It was indeed the only one at which she could arrive, and, moreover, it conveyed that little bouquet of flattery which had been found grateful by many far less young and feminine than she. And so one evening, for the further elucidation of the enigma, and with the idea that perhaps it needed but a word from her to cause her husband to say something of that which was on his mind, and which she was at once longing and dreading to hear, one evening, when he had seemed particularly abstracted, she bent forward and said, Harmon, of what are you thinking? She had never called him by his given name before. He started and half turned. Of you, he answered, but made his heart sink. She saw that his eyes were not in hers, that they looked over and beyond her, as though they followed the fringes of an escaping dream. End of chapter 12 This recording by Matt Butcher, Peoria, Illinois. You can visit my blog at mattbuttershop.blogspot.com.